Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God, the private revelation of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus, which extends from the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closes with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus for the sake of the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of World War II, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published without her name shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share this lost treasure with the world. I hope you will enjoy them as much as I have. And if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man God, Book 1, Number 1, Introduction. Jesus orders me, take a completely new notebook, write down on the first page what I dictated on August 16th. She will be spoken of in this book. I obey and I write. Jesus says, Today write only this. Purity has such a value that the womb of a creature can contain the uncontainable one, because she possessed the greatest purity that a creature of God could have. The most holy trinity descended with its perfections, inhabited with its three persons, enclosed its infinity in a small space, but it did not debase itself by doing so because the love of the Virgin and the will of God widened this space until they rendered it a heaven, and the Most Holy Trinity made itself known by its characteristics. The Father, being once again the creator of the creature, as on the sixth day of creation, had a real, worthy daughter fashioned to his perfect image. The mark of God was impressed so completely and exactly on Mary that only in the firstborn was it greater. Mary can be called the secondborn of the Father because, owing to the perfection granted to her and preserved by her, and to her dignity of spouse and mother of God and queen of heaven, she comes second after the Son of the Father and second in his eternal thought, which, ab eterno, took delight in her. The Son, being also her Son, did teach her, by the mystery of grace, his truth and wisdom when he was but an embryo growing in her womb. The Holy Spirit appeared amongst men for an anticipated prolonged Pentecost, love for whom, her whom he loved, consolation to men because of the fruit of her womb, sanctification on account of the maternity of the Holy One, God to reveal himself to men in the new and complete form which starts the redemption era, did not select for his throne a star in the sky, nor the palace of a powerful man. Neither did he want the wings of angels as the base of his feet. He wanted a spotless womb. Also Eve had been created spotless, but she wanted to become corrupt of her own free will. Mary, who lived in a corrupt world, Eve was in a pure world, did not wish to violate her purity, not even with one thought remotely connected with sin. She knew that sin exists. She saw its various and horrible forms and implications. 
She saw them all, including the most hideous one, deicide. But she knew them solely to expiate them and to be forever the woman who has mercy on sinners and prays for their redemption. This thought will be the introduction to other holy things that I will give you for your benefit and the welfare of many people. The Poem of the Man God, Book 1, Number 11. Mary will confide her vow to the spouse God will give her. What a terrible night. It seemed that the demons were raiding the world. Cannon shots, thunder and lightning, dangers, fears, and the suffering because I was lying on a bed which was not mine. And in the middle of all this, there was Mary, like a sweet white flower amongst fire and troubles. She looked a little older than in yesterday's vision, but still a young girl with her plaits of fair hair over her shoulders. Her dress was white and her smile mild and coy an intimate smile, at the glorious mystery enclosed in her heart. I spent the night comparing her mild appearance with the ferocity of the world and meditating on her words of yesterday morning, a song of living charity, as compared to the ferocious hatred of men. This morning, in the quiet of my room, I saw the following scene. Mary is still in the temple. She is now coming out with other virgins from the inner part of the temple. There must have been a ceremony because there is the scent of incense in the air of a red sunset. It must be late October because the sky, already serenely restful, as is usual in clear October days, is bending over the gardens of Jerusalem, where the yellow oak over leaves, about to fall, add gold red spots to the silvery green of the olive trees. The crowd, nay, the host of white-dressed virgins, crosses the rear yard, then climbs the steps, goes through a porch and enters another square yard, not quite so splendid, without any other door except the one leading into it. It must be the yard allocated to the small dwellings of the virgins assigned to the temple, because each girl moves towards her cell like a little dove to its nest. They look like a flock of doves that separate after gathering together. They are all speaking in low but joyful voices before separating. Mary is silent. Before leaving the other girls, she bids them good night affectionately and then goes to her little room in a corner on the right-hand side. One of the teachers, an elderly lady, but not so old as Anna of Fanuel, joins her. Mary, the high priest wants to see you. Mary looks at her, somewhat surprised, but does not ask any question. She only replies, I will go at once. I do not know whether the large hall which she enters is the house of the high priest or whether it is part of the dwellings of the women assigned to the temple. I know it is wide and bright, tastefully arranged. In addition to the high priest, a stately man in his robes, there are also Zacharias and Anna of Fenuel. Mary bows down on the threshold and does not enter until the high priest says to her, Come in, Mary, do not be afraid. Mary walks up again and slowly moves forward, not because she is unwilling, but because of a somewhat unintentional gravity, which makes her look more of a woman. Anna smiles at her to encourage her, and Zacharias greets her. Peace to you, cousin. The high priest observes her very carefully, and then he remarks to Zacharias, She is obviously of the stock of David and Aaron. My child, I am aware of your grace and goodness. I know that every day you are growing in grace and knowledge before God and men. I know that the voice of God whispers his sweetest words to your heart. 
I know that you are the flower of God's temple, and that a third cherub is before the testimony since you were here. And I would like your perfume to continue to rise with the incense every day. But the law says differently. You are no longer a girl, but a woman. And every woman must be a wife in Israel to bear a son to the Lord. You shall follow the commandment of the law. Do not be afraid. Do not blush. I am aware of your royalty. The law that prescribes that each man is to be given a woman of his own stock will protect you. But even if that were not the case, I would do so, so that your magnificent blood might not be corrupted. Don't you know anyone of your stock, Mary, who might be your husband? Mary lifts her face full of blushes. Her eyes are shining with tears, which begin to appear, and with a trembling voice she replies, No, nobody. It is not possible for her to know anyone, because she came here in her childhood, and David's race has been struck too severely and scattered too widely to allow the various branches to gather like foliage around the royal palm, says Zacharias. We shall then leave the choice to God. The tears that Mary had restrained so far gush out and fall on her trembling mouth. She looks imploringly at her teacher. Mary has consecrated herself to the Lord for his glory and for the salvation of Israel. She was but a little child, just learning to read and write, and she had already made her vow, says Anna, helping her. Is that why you are crying, then, not because you wish to resist the law? Just for that, nothing else. I shall obey you, priest of God. This confirms what I have always been told of you. How long have you been consecrated to the Lord? I have always been, I think. I was not yet in this temple, and I had already given myself to the Lord. But you are not the little one who came twelve years ago and asked me to be allowed to enter. I am. Well, then, how can you say that you already belong to God, then? If I look back, I find I was consecrated. I do not remember when I was born. Neither do I remember how I began to love my mother and to say to my father, Father, I am your daughter. But I remember that I gave my heart to God, although I do not know when it started. Perhaps it was with the first kiss that I was able to give, with the first word that I learned to say, with the first step that I took. Yes, I think I find my first recollection of love with my first steady step. My house, near the house, there was a garden full of flowers, and there was an orchard and some fields, and there was a spring of water at the rear, under the hill, and the water gushed out from a hollow rock that formed a grotto. It was full of long and thin herbs that hung down, forming small green waterfalls everywhere, and they seemed to be weeping, because the thin little leaves that seemed an embroidery work had tiny little drops of water on them, and when the drops fell they tinkled like little bells. Also the spring seemed to be singing, and there were birds on the olive and apple trees above the spring, and white doves used to come and wash in the clear water of the fountain. I was no longer thinking of all that, because I had put all my heart in God, and, with the exception of my father and mother, whom I loved in life and in death, every other worldly thing had disappeared from my heart. But you have made me think of it. I must find when I gave myself to God, and the things of my first years come back to my mind. I loved that grotto because I heard a voice sweeter than the song of the water and the warbling of the birds say to me, Come, my beloved. I loved those herbs covered with tinkling and sparkling diamonds drops, because I could see in them the sign of my Lord, and I used to say to myself, O soul of mine, 
See how great your God is. He who made the cedars of Lebanon for the eagles has also made these little leaves that bend down under the weight of a little mosquito, and he made them for the joy of your eyes and as a protection for your little feet. I love that silence of pure things, the light breeze, the silvery water, the purity of the doves. I love the peace that hovered over the little grotto and descended from the apple and olive trees, now full of blossoms, then laden with beautiful fruit. And I do not know. The voice seemed to be saying to me, Yes, just to me. Come, specious olive. Come, sweet apple. Come, sealed spring. Come, my dove. Sweet is the love of a father. Sweet the love of a mother. Sweet their voices calling me. But this, this one. Oh, in the earthly paradise, I think that she who became guilty heard it thus. And I do not understand how she could prefer a hiss to this voice of love. How could she could desire any other knowledge that was not God? With my lips, which still tasted of my mother's milk, but with my heart full of celestial honey, I then said, Here I am, I am coming, I am yours. No one will have my body but you, my Lord, neither will my soul have any other love. And while saying so, it seemed to me that I was saying over again things already said, and that I was fulfilling a rite already fulfilled and the chosen spouse was not a stranger to me, because I already knew his ardor, and my sight had been formed at his light, and my capacity for loving had been fulfilled in his embrace. When? I do not know. Beyond life, I would say, because I feel I always had him, and that he always had me, and that I exist because he wanted me for the joy of his spirit and mine. Now, I obey you, O priest, but please tell me how I am to behave." I have neither father nor mother. Please be my guide. God will give you your husband, and he will be a holy man, because you have entrusted yourself to God. You will tell him your vow. And will he agree? I hope so. Pray, my child, that he may understand your heart. Go now. May God always accompany you. Mary withdraws with Anna. Zechariah stays with the high priest. And the vision ends thus. Hello and welcome. This podcast is all about presenting the poem of the man God, a private revelation given to a blessed Maria Valtorta from the inside cover. Maria Valtorta was born on the 14th of March, 1897 in Caserta, where her parents, originally from Lombard region, were in temporary residence. Her father, Joseph, born in Montova in 1862, was a serving non-commissioned officer in the 19th Cavalry Regiment. Her mother, Isid Flaviranza, born in Cremona in 1861, was a French teacher. After brushing with death during her birth, Maria re- remained an only child, having as wet nurse a wretched mercenary. When she was hardly 18 months old, the family moved to Faenza in Romagna, and a few years later, in 1901, transferred yet again to Milan, where Maria was placed in the Ursuline Sisters' kindergarten, located in Via Lanzone. Here, at the age of four, 
Maria began to experience the desire to console Jesus by becoming like him in sorrow, voluntarily born out of love. In October 1904, at age seven years of age, she was enrolled in the Institute of the Marcellian Sisters, located in Via Venti Settembre, where she initiated elementary studies, achieving from the start scholastic recognition as first in her class. On the 30th of May 1905, in the Via Quadano, center of the same institute, she was confirmed by the Holy Cardinal Andrea Ferrari, whose touch truly infused the spirit of love into her. Subject once again to professional transfer, in September 1907, her father took the family to Bulgaria, where Maria frequented public schools. The French lessons held every Thursday by a religious order exiled from France on account of the Combes Law served to place her soul in communion with God once again. And at Casteggio, on the first Sunday of October 1908, Maria received her first Holy Communion. But she was deeply grieved at the absence of her father, whom she loved so much. Her mother, an extremely severe woman, had judged his presence at the ceremony as unnecessary. Due to the habitual despotic attitude of her mother, to which her father responded with meek docility, Maria was painfully obliged to leave her home in March 1909 at 12 years of age to go to a boarding school. But since it was a beautiful Biascone College of Monza of the Sisters of Charity of the Most Holy Child Mary, she ended up by finding herself at home. Her generous, firm, strong, and faithful character brought her to be nicknamed Valtorino. Her love of study, order, and obedience gave her the reputation of being exemplary. But her mother decided that she should follow a technical course of studies, and Maria, quite inept in mathematics, could not avoid failing in her examinations badly. She later made up for the time she had lost by means of intensive study and completed the classical course in which she had always succeeded so well. After five terrible scholastic years and four solar years, it was yet again her mother who decreed that she should leave college in February 1913. She had to leave the nest of peace, and her poor heart, presaging the future awaiting her so tormentingly, trembled with fear and grief. From the last spiritual exercises in which she participated at the college, given by the bishop Monsignor Canzani, Maria wanted to obtain an enduring fruit for her, all her immediate life in the world and a program for what would be her future life. And the Lord, once again, did not fail to reveal himself to her soul, bringing her to understand what was to be her life in God in relation to God and wanted by God. In springtime of 1913, the Valtorta family moved to Florence, this time not to follow the regiment, but because Joseph retired for health reasons. Maria often visited the city with her father, and on her own account continued to lead the life of a schoolgirl, despite the free lessons in religious indifference, which her mother did not fail to provide. In Florence, Maria met Robert. He was handsome, wealthy, and cultured. He was also good, serious, and calm. They loved each other, a silent, patient, respectful love. 
but Maria's mother wanted to terminate the budding friendly affection. A similar circumstance was to take place nine years later in Maria's engagement to Mario, a winsome, motherless youth, needful of care and affection in order to become a good fellow, a valiant officer. For Maria, to love was an intransgressible condition to be able to live, but she was to go to God after seeing how tenuous are human affections. In the spring of 1916, during a tremendous period of desperation and desire, the Lord returned to attract her to himself by means of a dream which was to remain vivid in Maria throughout her life in an evangelical vision which seemed to anticipate the waking visions of her literary work jesus aided maria with words of admonishment and piety as well as a gesture of absolution and blessing which for maria were a cleansing which completely purified her and she awoke with her soul enlightened by something which was not of this world but with her withdrawal from the world was still remote in 1917, Maria entered the ranks of the Samaritan nurses and for 18 months offered her service at the military hospital in Florence, having requested assignment with soldiers and not with officers to serve those who suffered and not to flirt or find a husband, she said. In exercising this charity, she felt as if she were sweetly obliged to draw ever closer to God. It was an act of thoughtless violence which marked the beginning of her gradual immolation. It happened on the 17th of March, 1920. She was walking along a street accompanied by her mother when she was struck in the back by a young delinquent. With an iron bar stripped from a bed, he came from behind and struck her with all his might. She remained confined to bed for three months, just a sample of what was to be her future, complete infirmity. In October of the same year, she went with her parents to Reggio Calabria, and as a guest of her cousins Belfanti, who were hotel proprietors. The splendor of nature in this region revived her spirit, and the most beautiful collection of books belonging to her cousin Coltide gave her respite to her wholesome desire for learning, and this time the Lord made use of a book to give her yet another vigorous push. The Saint by Antonio Fogazzaro engraved an indelible sign in her heart and it was a good sign. At Reggio Calabria, Maria experienced certain psychic perceptions in a more conscious way, whereas in the preceding years she had considered them as premonition and other strange things. At Reggio, her rapture for St. Francis reflourished as well, and it was to remain an immutable characteristic of her spirituality. At Reggio, alas, she saw her mother's scheming arts to destroy her engagement to Mario. She returned to Florence, and on the 2nd of August, 1922, she remained there for two years, crushed by bitter memories. In September 1924, the Valtorta family moved definitively to Via Reggio, where they settled down in the newly purchased little house on October 23rd. Here, Maria continued to lead a life of solitude, except for some short excursions to the seaside and pine forest and the daily shopping which allowed her to visit Jesus in the Most Holy Sacrament without attracting her mother's thunderbolts. But for her, a new and different period in her life had begun, in which she progressively matured in God. Attracted by the example of St. Teresa of the Child Jesus, whose autobiography she had read in one sitting, Maria offered herself as victim to the merciful love, 
renewing thereafter every day this act of offering. From that moment, she grew to extraordinary heights in her love for Jesus, even to feeling his presence in her own words and actions. Urged by a longing to serve the Lord, she wished to enter the company of St. Paul, but she had to justify had to satisfy herself with carrying out a humble, hidden apostolate known only to God, nurtured more through suffering than action. Beginning in December 1929, however, when she was admitted to Catholic action as youth cultural delegate, she was quick to take on enthusiastic activity, organizing conferences which attracted large audiences, progressively more numerous even among non-practicing Catholics. In the meantime, the decision was maturing in her to offer herself as victim to divine justice, for which she was preparing with a life ever more pure and sacrificial. For some time now she had already pronounced the vows of virginity, poverty, and obedience, renewing her offering on the 1st of July, 1931, while her suffering, both physical and spiritual, was spared her less and less. The 4th of January, 1933, was the last day on which Maria, walking with extraordinary fatigue, was able to leave her house. And from this 1st of April in 1934, she was no longer able to leave her bed, which was the beginning, in an intense rapture of love, of her long and active infirmity. She became the instrument in the hands of God. Her mission was to suffer, to expiate, to love. Martha de Cotti entered the Valtorta household on the 24th of May, 1935. She was to become Maria's faithful companion, the listener of her writings, the one who would lovingly assist and care for her up to her death. Just one month later, however, after having received the consolation of the constant presence of a friend, Maria was to suffer the painful blow of her father's death on the 30th of June. He had always fulfilled his duty with patience, sweetness, and love, forgiving all offenses, returning good for evil, overcoming the sorrows caused by those who continuously misjudged and hurt him, she wrote. The pain of not being able to assist him in his last moments, and of not even seeing his body after his death, brought Maria to feel between death and life. Her mother, after the stupid scenes of tardy love, so-called, became even more callous and despotic, finding herself absolute mistress had touched her mind. And in her sick bed, Maria continued to suffer and to love, becoming ever more disposed to the will of God, consoling the afflicted, correcting those in spiritual darkness, receiving painful premonitions about the gravity of the times, always revealing the virile strength of her character and the clear intelligence of a mind fixed on God. It was in 1942 that she was visited by a pious missionary priest, Father Romuald Maliarini of the Servants of Mary, who was her spiritual director for four years. At his request in 1943, she agreed to write her autobiography on condition that she would be allowed to tell all the good and all the bad in an authentic display of her soul. Industrious, intelligent, and gifted, Maria was inclined to be interested in everything. Not even her imposed illness impeded her from working and writing. To her multiple aptitudes, particularly feminine, she added the gift of being a born writer. And she was to put exactly this distinguished ability at the complete disposition of God, whom she loved to the point of self-immolation. 
prodded by supernatural impulse on Good Friday, the 23rd of April of the same year, 1943, she began writing the dictations after having completed the autobiography. A few months later, on the 4th of October, unaware of her daughter's sublime undertaking, Maria's mother died. Maria had loved her with a love that not even her harshness had been able to tire or diminish. At home now, there were just Maria and Martha. Her activity as writer reached intensity from 1943 to 1947 and continued, diminishing progressively until 1953. Maria thus wrote, above all in time of war and in very difficult conditions, including evacuation, whereby on the 24th of April, 1944, she was obliged to move to St. Andrew of Compito, section of the borough of Capagnori in the province of Lucca. She returned to her dear home at Via Reggio on the 23rd of December that same year. She used to write in an almost sitting position in bed in ordinary school notebooks, which she supported with a piece of cardboard held on her bent knees. She would write at any time, by day or night, even when she was exhausted by fatigue or tormenting pains. She wrote effortlessly, naturally, and without revision. If interrupted, she could leave off writing and then resume later on with ease. She did not consult books, except for the Bible and the Catechism of Pope Pius X. Her mission as writer did not isolate her from the world. She was concerned for the persons near her, assisting them in their lives and worries with enlightened counsel, and when necessary, with secret and heroic sacrifices which miraculously solved painful cases. Neither was she indifferent to the fate of her country, which she loved so much. Nor did she forego her civil duties, even to the point of having herself transported by ambulance to the polling station on the 18th of April, 1948. During her continuous work, her living and constant prayer, her suffering embraced with the joy of the Redeemers, Maria begged God not to concede her external signs of her intense participation in Christ, who used her as faithful spokesman and pen, manifesting himself in the richness of the visions and in the depth of the dictations. The notebooks written by Maria Valtorta include almost 15,000 pages. Little less than two-thirds of this astounding literary production concerns the monumental work of the life of Jesus, the poem of the man-god. The minor works include extensive commentaries on biblical texts, doctrinal lessons, histories of the first Christians and martyrs, and pious compositions. I can affirm, one of Valtorta's declarations read, that I have no have had no human source to be able to know what I write, and what, even while writing, I often do not understand. Besides the highly inspired productions, of which she did not consider herself the author, Maria Valtorta has left us interesting autobiographical writings and a rich correspondence which display her strong human personality, voluntarily offered in heroic and holy sacrifice to God for the good of all. On the 18th of April, 1949, Maria offered to God the sacrifice of not seeing the ecclesiastic approval of the work, and she added also the precious gift of her own intelligence. The Lord must have taken her at her word, because after seeing the work blocked, Maria began a slow process of withdrawal into a kind of psychological isolation, which started perhaps in 1956. One of the first signs of this condition was the exaggerated use of capital letters in her personal correspondence. 
Thereafter followed the mania of filling holy cards, and in general any piece of paper she happened to have at hand, with ejaculations such as, Jesus, I confide in you, which at times she computed in terms of indulgences obtained. And Maria, who either writing or working or praying had never idled in bed, ended up by being completely inactive. She began responding mistakenly in her conversations, and at times evidenced her congenial wit without considering its convenience. But she progressively spoke less, to the point of limiting herself to the mechanical repetition of a greeting or of the final words of a phrase addressed to her, frustrating all attempts at dialogue. From time to time she would shout or exclaim, How bright the sun is there! Her eyes, however, remained clear, and her attitude tranquil. She never asked for anything, and she allowed herself to be fed like a child. When interrogated because of some serious circumstance regarding her writings, she responded briefly and exactly, as if temporarily shaken out of her state of incommunicability. On the 16th of September, 1961, due to her deteriorated health, Maria was taken by ambulance to Pisa and was admitted to the clinic of the servants of Maria of Dolorosa, where she remained until the end of the month. Without any signs of recovery, she was taken back to her room at Via Reggio, where she died on the 12th of October, 1961, at 10.35 a.m., in the 65th year of her life and the 28th of her infirmity. The corrector of the Third Order of the Servants of Mary, Father Innocencio Rovetti, was called to assist her at her deathbed. She had belonged to this Third Order as well as to the Third Order Franciscans. At the very moment the priest recited the words, Depart, O Christian soul, from this world, Maria breathed her last. It seemed to be her final act of obedience. From a manuscript of 1944, we know that Jesus had said to her, How happy you will be when you realize that you are in my world forever, and that you have come there from the miserable world without even having been aware of it, passing from a vision to reality, just like a child dreaming of his mother awakens to find her embracing her. That is how I will, have, I will behave with you. Her body was laid in her own room on the very bed which had witnessed the sufferings, industrious activity, acts of offering, and pious death of the infirm author, who several years earlier had selected her burial attire, the baptismal veil which was to cover her head, and the phrase to be printed in her memory, I have finished suffering, but I will go on loving. The few solemn visitors were able to admire the brightness of her right hand, the one which had been defined as pen of the Lord, while her left hand was turning livid, and her knees, which had served as her desk, were visibly bent under her white dress, even now that she was laid down in the repose of death. The funeral took place on the 14th of October in early morning, and with great simplicity, just as Maria had requested some time before. Following the celebration of the sacred rite of the parish of San Paulino, a small procession of motor cars accompanied the deceased to the Mercy Cemetery, where the burial took place. Ten years later, on the 12th of October, 1971, her mortal remains were exhumed from the earth and placed in the family niche. On the 2nd of July, 1973, however, with civil and ecclesiastic permission, they were transferred from Via Regia to Florence, to be entombed in the capitular chapel in the grand cloister of the Basilica of the Most Holy Annunciation, where the tomb of Maria Valtorta is still venerated. 
The first editions of Maria Valtorta's writings began to be published without her name during the last years of her life. They quickly received an extensive welcome in the world, with diffusion in Italy as well as abroad, even to distant lands, and all without publicity, but with the sole impact of their message of truth and love, which win over men's hearts, changing them for the better. In the dictation of the 23rd of August, 1943, we find the following words of Jesus addressed to the writer. Good sense is needed to use my gift, he said, not an open and noisy diffusion, but a slow expansion, progressively wider and without any name. When your hand is stilled in peace, in the expectation of the glorious resurrection, then and only then will your name be mentioned. The major work is A Great Life of Jesus, the narration of which extends from the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary to her assumption into heaven. Defined in the Valtortian writings as the Gospel of our Lord Jesus as it was revealed to little John, the work received the simpler title, The Poem of Jesus, which was preferred for the first edition. Later, the editor was requested to rectify this title because it had already been applied to a small volume of poetry published elsewhere, and the revised title read as The Poem of the Man God as it remains to this day. Nevertheless, it, it is a gospel, which neither substitutes nor changes the gospel, but rather narrates it, integrating and illuminating it, with the declared purpose of reviving in men's hearts the love for Christ and his mother. And it was revealed to Maria Valtorta, called Little John, John, to place her close to the evangelist, who was the favorite disciple, Little, because of the dependence of her work, although quite extensive, on those of the evangelists who, in short manuscripts, enclosed what is essential. <laughs>